Hey everyone, it's Julian. Thanks for tuning in to Let's Be Real as always. We have a great show for you today. I really hope you enjoy it. Hey everybody, thanks for joining. It's Julian. And this is Let's Be Real, where we talk about real things with real people. My guest today is Melissa Hollitz. Melissa is currently partner at a top-tier law firm, Wilson Sonsini, where she practices corporate and securities law, or, in English, helps technology companies incorporate, grow, scale, and undertake complex transactions. Aside from being a big-shot attorney, Melissa also actively practices horse cross-country with her two horses, Fiona and Ruby. She's also a great friend, mentor, and inspiration. Melissa, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited to be here. So you're from Montana, but you moved out to Stanford for college and stayed for law school and beyond. I'm a native Californian, so I'm hardly cultured on what Montana has to offer. My first question is, just how different is the lifestyle growing up in Montana versus California? <laughs> it, it is very different. <laughs> um, it was a bit of a culture shock coming out here for college. Ob- obviously it took and, and I love it here and um, I continue to love it here, but it is a very different pace. It is a very different set of values. It is a very different um, set of relationships and, 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 and worldview out in Montana. So it was, um, it was just what I needed when I came out, but it was, it was, it was very different. <laughs> so tell me a little bit more about that difference in pace that you mentioned. In California, I feel like we like to think of ourselves as chill, though I've noticed that in my generation, we seem to be a little more intense than I think we give ourselves credit for. So I'd kind of love to hear your perspective on on how that pace is different from Montana, from what you've experienced. Yes, I think that's well said. So I, um, I think California likes to pretend that we are chill, but underneath the surface, there is a lot more going on. I mean, I, I remember just going to college. I remember everybody that the culture was, you had to say like, oh, I didn't study. Oh, I wasn't paying attention to that. Oh, I'm not trying very hard. But man, was everyone type A. It was just that you couldn't say that out loud. And and I remember a smaller culture shock going to law school, which was very different. It was it was funny. It was still Stanford, but, but undergrad versus law school was very different. And so at law school, people actually said what they were doing. And so I was still multiplying by 10. So someone was like, oh, I studied really hard for that. And I was like, oh my God, what did, what did that look like? <laughs> so I think there's some sandbagging in terms of the California lifestyle and, and, and how hard people say they're working versus how hard they're actually working, which is pretty hard. And Montana is, um, is a very different pace. So I would go home for, I still go home. And the first day drives me crazy because people want to just sit and have a cup of coffee and talk for three hours. And I love that by day two, but day one, I just want everyone to move faster. 
and get there, get to the point and, and let's go do more. So I have to really reset. I, I really have to reset my internal clock and, and, wow. and appreciate that it's a different lifestyle and it's a different approach. Montana is to California as California is to New York, it sounds like. Yeah. Yes. I think that's totally right. Okay. So let me ask you this on worldview, which you mentioned. In California and on the West Coast, I think it's easy for us to feel like we're in a bubble where there's a ton of ethnic diversity, religious diversity, and of course technology has taken over the way our economy runs and is managed. Montana maybe runs at a different pace, understandably. But let me ask you, you have been back to Montana multiple times now over the course and advent of the internet. I'm curious whether or not you have noticed worldviews change in Montana due to the advent of the internet and the sort of democratization of information that we've created. I think there are patches of Montana that are very, very different than they used to be. So, you know, Bozeman, Montana is called Los Angeles now and has startups and apps and a Lululemon and a whole bunch of things that it certainly didn't when I was growing up. Having said that, I have a nephew who still lives in Bo- in the suburbs now of Bozeman who literally doesn't use email. So I have to text him if I want to talk to him about something. And he's a rancher and he's really successful at what he does. And technology has nothing to do with his world and he's not interested in it. So I think some parts of the tech universe have permeated all of our lives, including in Montana. But I I do think there are still interesting islands where it is, it, it is, again, it is a very different perspective than what we have here. And to your point of diversity, it's just lacking in Montana in a lot of ways. And again, that's, that's maybe a little bit unfair and, and it is changing some, but um, you don't, you don't see as many people who are diverse in however you want to define diversity. And that was one of the most amazing things about coming to California. And one of the most interesting things, um, one of the things that frankly keeps me here is you, you see people here that come from all over and different backgrounds, different cultures, different perspectives. And I find that super inspiring and super interesting. And I think, well, Montana has a little bit of that. It is not punching you in the nose everywhere you are the same way it is here. Yeah, I I think it's tough to be California by way of ethnic diversity. But so let me ask you this. So you go to Montana these years and you visit family, you come back to California. What is it that you come back here and wish that we had here that Montana has that we just don't. Aside from the crowds and the traffic and, and the smoke from the wildfires, <laughs> what do you what do you miss from well, there? Montana now has its own set of wildfires. So, uh, well, so housing prices obviously, <laughs> although that's changing in Montana too. No, I think it is for me. It is the sense of community. Um, well, there are patches of community here in California in Montana. And by the way, I hated this growing up. I was shy. I was living in a small town where everybody knew everybody's business. And I I absolutely didn't appreciate it at that time. But looking back, everyone was in everyone's business in ways that was lovely. So, you know, specific example, my, my brother, there was a fire that was recently that, that started up and, and was threatening his house. And there aren't that many neighbors, but all of the neighbors showed up 
and held the fire off. And that just wouldn't happen here. People don't know each other as well. People don't feel like as tightly knit or as interdependent a community. Um, And I think that's really special. Hold on. You had your brother with his neighbors just fight a fire casually. Yeah. I mean, in in California, we would be screaming and running out of the house with our MacBook and AirPods in tow, let alone banding up with our neighbors to fight the blaze ourselves. I mean, that's that's crazy. I mean, it's awesome, but it's also crazy. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is. It is a very it is a very different world. And um, and and it would have it would have been unthinkable for people not to show up, which is even better. So. So yeah, no, I think that's a really special, there there is just this extraordinary sense of community that I think is really unique. And I think is, um, if I could transport one thing from Montana to here, other than a large piece of acreage for the horses, it would be that. Yeah. I mean, that sense of community is incredibly important and it (laughs) definitely doesn't hurt if you have neighbors who are willing to drop what they're doing and come help you fight a fire that's (laughs) going to take down your house that really speaks to a level of friendship and loyalty that's just, it's next level. (laughs) Which brings me to my next point. You know, we met actually as part of the same community, working at the law firm Wilson Cincini. And I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about your work there. So full disclosure to those listening, that I worked at WSGR for a couple of years, and it was a great firm. Melissa was a great teammate and an amazing mentor. That said, Melissa, I want to know from you, what does it look like and feel like on a day-to-day basis being a high-power attorney working in corporate law? It's such a mystical arena for most folks. Paint us a picture, as honestly and openly as you prefer, of what your day-to-day feels like. It's... <laughs> First of all, I'm not sure I'm a high-power lawyer, but I, but I am a lawyer, so I'll, I'll, I'll run with that. I think on, <laughs> I think it's like juggling chainsaws and on a good day, it's exhilarating and I'm trading the, 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 the chainsaws with a great teammate and we're keeping it all up in the air and it's a very exciting adventure. And on the bad days, I feel like somebody's throwing chainsaws at my head <laughs> and, um, so it's a lot. I, a very long time ago in my career, somebody told me that everything we do as lawyers is either hard or boring or both. I think there's a little bit of truth to that. Although I, I will say, again, on my good days, I think the hard stuff is, is an exciting mental problem to untangle. That is clearly the good part of it. Um, and then you get the boring stuff that is a little bit of a take a breath before you dive into the next wave. Um, but, I, but, I, but I'm not sure that's an inaccurate description of what we do. <laughs> so juggling chainsaws, I mean, that sounds incredibly cool, but also challenging and in some ways stressful. Is there an element of this job and career that's adrenaline inducing? Because that sounds like a lot of adrenaline. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. I think if you are doing it at a certain, I think to succeed long-term in this career, you have to actually care about it. 
And if you actually care, then it's a little scary because there are tight deadlines and there are unreasonable or, or reasonable but demanding expectations. And every time you do something in you do it the first time in seven days and then it's let's try for six and then it's let's try for five and it keeps stacking up and getting more and more difficult. So if you don't, if there's not some sick part of you that doesn't enjoy the adrenaline rush, I'm not sure this job is going to be for you over the long run. Right. Right. That makes total sense. Well, then let me ask you this. In such a demanding field, and, and I've seen this myself working in it, where clients are demanding, it's high stress, it's high pressure, it's a lot of stress and work, how do you keep your sense of humor and that sense of sarcasm and just fun? <laughs> I, I think it's the opposite. I think if I didn't have a bit of a sense of humor about it, or if I didn't have the incredibly powerful tool of sarcasm, I just couldn't do the job different strokes for different folks and, 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 and some people cope differently, but I think being able to laugh in the midst of the worst parts is, is really the secret. Were you always like that, you know, laughing in the face of chainsaws and chaos, or was there a moment in your career where you realized I need to be this way in order to really survive and thrive in it? I think, I think I have been lucky in that there was always some part of me that realized that for all that I use the juggling chainsaws metaphor, there's also a little bit of it that nothing I do matters. I'm just doing paperwork. And in the grand scheme of things, it's not that important. So I think I was gifted with a great upbringing that brought a little bit of perspective. Um, so I think it's easier. I think it's easier to keep a little bit of a sense of humor if you don't take yourself too seriously. And I, <laughs> if if I was ever inclined to take myself seriously, there were enough people around me <laughs> that would <laughs> correct my misapprehension about how important I was quickly that I wouldn't get too far off the path. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's great. What what was it about your upbringing that you think? made you like this? Was it the sense of community? Was it the talking three hours a day? So you only let these things get you so much? Tell me a little bit about that. I, I think it was a little bit of, so I, so I remember I got, you know, I got into Stanford and I was very proud of that. And, <laughs> and so I, so I told a couple people in back in Montana that I had gotten into Stanford and there's a very small town in Montana called Stanford, Montana, a very small town. It, it literally has a bar and nothing else. And a couple people, their, their reaction was, oh, that's so and genuinely like, oh, so great for you. I, I didn't realize Stanford had a college. Oh, I see where this <laughs> is going. <laughs> so they just didn't care. And they were very unimpressed with what I was doing. And they, in the best possible way, they didn't really value the education I was getting. And they didn't think what I, they didn't understand or, or, or certainly weren't impressed, even if they did understand what I was doing for a living. And so there was a lot of perspective there. Um, also, I will say just being here, 
I'm doing okay. I'm surrounded by a ton of people that are much smarter than I am and much more successful than I am, no matter how you define it. And I think that's good. That's really powerful that this sort of fresh perspective that you have on success was shaped ironically by your community's lack of, of interest and investment in the fancy degrees and the end-all be-all diplomas. It, it's so different. Where I was raised in a suburb of Sacramento, if you got into Stanford, and I should clarify, everyone knew it was the Stanford Palo Alto, <laughs> you'd be the talk of the town. So it's really cool to hear that not only were you not limited by the fact that your community didn't place a high value on this achievement. In fact, it propelled you forward in a way because it gave you confidence in yourself and you felt proud of the achievement regardless of how others perceived it. It's really the best of both worlds by way of balance. Yeah, I think that's well said. I, 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 was, I was pleased with myself for what I was doing, but nobody else was and in some ways that's a pretty good way to have things yeah yeah okay one last question for you on your work at wilson so the field of big law and law in general it's very demanding clients demand a lot you're tied to your phone with your email it's a high pressure job a lot of people in the field myself included really struggle to maintain boundaries and a sense of balance with their work life, personal life, fun life, you name it. And yet, here you are cross-country horse riding on the daily and loving it. How do you do it? And what is everyone else here missing by way of this balance? Well, I mean, first of all, to be clear, I, I certainly don't pretend that I have it all figured out. I, I have, I think, more good days than bad days on balance, and I am, I am proud of that, but anyone who tells you they have it figured out is either lying to you or themselves. But I think to the extent that I have come a little closer to it than some people have, I think it's, I think it's a couple of things. I think, I think one is... I put the priorities outside of work first. So, so I have the horses and in my head, I have told myself the horses absolutely have to go out every day because it's not fair to them. Otherwise, I'm sure by the way, my horses would feel otherwise and would be perfectly happy never leaving their stalls. But, but that's the story I've always told myself is, is if I'm going to have, I'm committed to them and, and that has to happen. And it's amazing how if you sort of put the big rocks in first, work can't expand to fill everything up. So it's, you know, it's, and it's whatever your big rock is, right? So it's, is it kids? Is it friendships? Is it the pets? Is it hiking? Is it ballet? Is it whatever it is? Um, but I think that has to come first and it has to be really a last resort to, to move it. Like I, I really do prioritize it pretty highly. And sometimes it means I take a conference call sitting on top of a horse and people don't know. Um, and sometimes it means things go out a little later than they otherwise would. And I think that's been, I think that's been really, really critical to my staying sane in, in the business for a long time. And then I think the other piece of it is 
um, is really just, and, and this, by the way, is the only reason I've also been able to stay at the job as long as I have, is just, is just having good relationships. So, um, not necessarily, so, so first of all, just, just to keep things in perspective and I, I treasure my relationships more than I treasure whatever measure of hours or success they want to give at the firm. And I have built up good enough relationships with my colleagues and with most of my clients that they understand that I, I, I will absolutely priority. I, I will get done what they want me to get done and I will be there for them. And, and, but they will also be there for me and we can sort of negotiate a way to get to the finish line that maybe is less painful than it otherwise would be. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you can work with clients, by the way, and, and not just for them, because that's incredibly important. So I hear you saying this, and it's so simple. And yet, I feel like there is this disconnect with a lot of people who, myself included, have the same intentions and wants by way of prioritization, right? And, and we have the same idea of the big rock that we want to put first before our work life. And yet, we don't put it into action like you do. And that's the thing that really separates you is that you take that action and you actually prioritize these things. What is there a secret here? You know, I know Nike just do it and that's great, right? But is there something that we are all missing here or a secret that you have in this when you can look someone in the eye and tell them that you are prioritizing a personal life and they'll look you right back and say that they're doing the same thing? right before they work until midnight and don't see their kids for three days. I think part, part of it is that the important things came first and work came second. I mean, just, just chronologically. So I came to Wilson having horses. And so it is always, it, it was a preexisting condition, I suppose. <laughs> and so it was easier to fill in around it because that was just how it always was. Um, I think part of it is maybe I just have less endurance than other people, but I'm so unhappy. I'm so unhappy when I let work fill everything in that at some point I just can't anymore or won't anymore. Um, and I have a great, I have such a good life outside of work. I'm so blessed with the people around me and living in this great place and being surrounded by extraordinary people. Um, so maybe if I have done anything clever, it was being smart enough to really appreciate all of that and to, to really value that. Not, and I don't mean to say that other people don't, but I'm, I am, um, I'm really committed to trying to hang on to that. That's, that's wonderful. And that gratitude is incredible. So let me ask you this then. When you set these boundaries and you prioritize your horse riding or your personal time or your exercise or whatever it is before work and, and you put the phone down, do you feel guilty for not looking at your phone and not working and making that prioritization, drawing that line? If oh, you yeah. don't feel guilty, you know, I'd love to hear about that. But if you do feel guilty, I'd really like to understand kind of like how you manage that and, and deal with it. Yeah, no, no, I, I absolutely feel guilty. And, I, and by the way, I also feel anxious. I mean, <laughs> 
I am like most lawyers, which is to say horrifically insecure and praise driven. And so I never want anyone to be unhappy. So it's hard. And I, again, I think one of the blessings in being in a large law firm is your clients don't necessarily know what you're doing. So I either have clients who understand that I'm out riding a horse and embrace it and are happy for me, or I have clients who don't know where I am. <laughs> and, and I do feel guilty. And sometimes that I, you know, sometimes I go do that. And that means that I'm up much later than I would like to, or I have to trade something else off to get something done. And I certainly haven't gone as quickly along my career path as maybe I would have if I had done nothing other than work. But but somehow it all, it's okay and it all works out. And I, I, and I will say, and this is one of the worst things about the pandemic is I would always leave the office thinking, oh, I have my list of 10 things that I absolutely must do tonight. And there's something magic about the 20 minute drive to my house where by the time I hit home, I'd be like, oh, never mind. I can do all of this tomorrow. And, and it is the same phenomenon when I go riding that my to-do list and my anxiety is very high before I start. And then I don't think about it. And then when I tune back in, it turns out the world didn't end. Mm. And that I'm actually not that important. <laughs> and it's all okay. Very wise. Very wise. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's clear for anyone listening that above all else, you are an incredibly humble person just teeming with gratitude and kindness in spite of and in addition to your intellectual and professional prowess. In a bubble of Silicon Valley, where egos are flying left and right and everyone is talking about the Joneses, or I should say the Zuckerbergs and the Jobses as it were, how have you managed to stay so grounded? Is this a result of your upbringing in Montana? Is this a personality thing? I mean, how do you do it? I mean, I certainly think that helped. I give a huge amount of credit to my dad, who, as, as you know, was incredibly important to me in my life, but was also, in addition to being an extraordinary person, really grounded and was, you know, was somewhat proud of my working, but was much more proud of my being a good human being. And that was a really helpful model to follow. Maybe it's also that it's easy to stay humble because I'm sort of not that good at my job. So that part's been easy. <laughs> I screw lots of stuff up. <laughs> that part is, I'm sure, an exaggeration. Well, what, what advice do you have for folks who are maybe embarking on their intellectual or financial or even their career journey and, and getting a taste of this success and, and wealth where they're going to be challenged, right? That humility that they have. What would you tell them and what advice would you give them to retain that sense of humanity? I think surround yourself with good people who will keep you on the right path and who will be by turns, suitably supportive and impressed with what you're doing and also uninterested in what mountain you're climbing and more interested in you as a human being. It, I think it's that network of people that will keep you sane through this and, and just having people that are there for you and also people whose perspectives you really can value and appreciate. I think that's so important. 
so life kind of pulls people apart, right? I hear this a lot from older folks and, and even folks in my, in my generation. Have friends sort of come and gone in, in your sphere over the years? Or have you been able to retain deep relationships that last through the uncertainties and tumultuous you know, unpredictabilities of life? Um, both. If, if there's one thing I'm really proud of, it's I've done a good job of keeping in touch, I think, with friends over the long haul. And so maybe, maybe I'm just a stalker, but once you're my friend, you're my friend and you're stuck with me. Um, so I do have friends that I have had for decade, many decades, and I think that's amazing. And I... And they fade in and out. People get busy. People move here, move away. And so there's there's a diff- there are people that I call in a crisis, and then there's people I see every day. And the people I see every day tend to be more geographically convenient or in the midst of a project with me or for some other reason. Our paths are sort of forced to connect. Um, but the, the people that are really important, I, I, I have stuck with for the long haul. And, um, and I don't have any intention of letting them slip away. I absolutely love to hear that. That's amazing. Okay, Melissa, the last question for you, and it's the most important question, as always, that we ask on the show. What is your spirit animal and why? So I I know this because I did an internet search, (laughs) circling back to the importance of technology, with some friends about a year ago. And... And mine is a sea turtle, which I have to say was very disappointing at the time. So I was with, so so my husband, Joe was, I think a wolf and I was with my friend, Catherine, who was a lion and I was, and I got sea turtle, which was not really that cool in the grand scheme of things, but I don't think it's wrong. I think I am on the slow and steady and stable side of things. I think I have probably a little bit of a tough shell, and a little bit of soft and squishy in between. Um, and I think I'm probably never going to win any races, but I'll keep going in the, hopefully the right direction. <laughs> I love that. I, I think of Crush from Finding Nemo. Yeah, dude. <laughs> I, I can just totally see it. Absolutely. <laughs> I absolutely love it. Okay. Last final parting words, Melissa. We are in a crazy era of humanity right now. 18 months plus into a global pandemic, the Delta variant is making a resurgence. Very, very unpredictable and uncertain time. What words of wisdom, if any, no pressure, do you have for the world from your learnings and life experience that you'd like to share, if anything? (laughs) So the secret to life is dot, dot, dot. Yeah, I I don't know what the secret to life is. I don't think anybody has it figured out, but I but I do think everyone is doing some pieces of it well. So I think my parting words, and this is totally consistent with our entire conversation, is you are not alone. You are surrounded by fantastic people who you can help and who will help you if you ask. And I think that brings me a lot of comfort and that we will get <laughs> it's scary it's hard 
Um, we will get through it, but we will we will get through it with a lot in a lot better shape if if we do it linked arm in arm with each other. And and that sounds cheesy, but I do genuinely believe it. Incredibly wise words. Melissa, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this, please share it with your friends or anyone else you think would be interested. And drop me a line sometime for any feedback you have. I'm at julian.serafian at gmail.com. Thanks, guys.